Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Well, we've got an important one today, you know, for a change. Daya Lithwick, who's been with us on quite a few occasions, she joins me. Uh, usually we laugh a lot. This one... Uh, not so much, because we're talking about abortion. And also joining me, Sarah Stace, who is CEO of Planned Parenthood for Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Iowa, and Nebraska, who gives us a very uh, sobering and really very disturbing look at uh, what has been happening on the ground for years in terms of assaults on reproductive rights in the upper Midwest. For example, there are no doctors in South Dakota who perform abortions. Uh, a doctor has to fly in, usually from Minnesota. The reality uh, for women, especially for poor women, uh, right now is uh, deliberately onerous. And we will be discussing the Mississippi law, which was argued before the Supreme Court. And of course, that's the role Dahlia plays on this podcast. She has her own podcast, Amicus, about the court, and she talks about the disingenuousness of some of the questioning by the conservative judges, particularly Kavanaugh, and how the real lives of women will be affected if this law is upheld and Roe overturned. It turned out that the evening before we taped this was on Wednesday, so the evening before would be, I think, Tuesday. Dahlia did a Zoom session with Sarah and progresses in Fargo. Dahlia and Sarah are real leaders. I've known Sarah for 13 years. She's been at this for 20-plus years, and she is the perfect person to talk about what happens if Roe is overturned. So uh, don't expect a lot of laughs, folks. Uh, but this is one you got to listen to. But we got Jim Gaffigan next week and David Letterman the week after. So that'll make up for this. Speaking of last, I just want the folks in Santa Cruz and Livermore, California, uh, to know that the only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour has been extended. And I'm coming to your communities. The two Livermore shows on January 8th are, are sold out, but there are still tickets available for my January 7th show at the Santa Cruz Auditorium. So if you're living in San Jose, which is between the two, go to the Santa Cruz is the one to go to. All right, um, we've got Dahlia Lithwick and Sarah Stays. It's, um, 
it's a sobering but very important one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. What we're going to basically talk about today is the uh, oral arguments on Mississippi before the Supreme Court. And uh, Dahlia, of course, that's your bailiwick. And uh, Sarah, you chime in on that too. And Sarah, you're on the ground. So, but we picked up with last night was kind of depressing. Is it, was it different? It was, did it feel different because it probably because of Mississippi, right? And because of Texas. Well, it's very sobering, of course, to be a progressive in a place like North Dakota. And I guess that's actually true for this entire region because there's been this sort of creeping conservative tide that has been covering more and more and more of the upper Midwest for a long time now. And we have been, for whatever reason, which we can certainly talk about that another time, unable to stop it. So that going to a place like North Dakota, as Dahlia did virtually last night, is, it's, is shocking. And what I appreciated, though, about Dahlia coming last night to Fargo is that she delivered a very strong message about people there who are progressive not being alone and being seen. And that's the work that we need to do in order to build a movement to change this country, which is the most important thing in front of us right now. Dahlia, were you there virtually? I was not, in fact, in North Dakota um, last night. I zoomed in. But I think that one of the things maybe to tie what Sarah just said back to something you and I have talked about on this show a bunch, Al, was like, I think it was really essential. And I think I said it in two different ways. You can't look at this 
rash of really revanchist, draconian, punitive abortion laws that are happening in the states and the ways in which it is so misaligned with public opinion, which is wildly in favor of Roe, that's not in dispute, without talking about the kinds of things you and I have talked about so many times on this show, Al, which is just democracy reform, that that is a function of gerrymandering, that is a function of vote suppression, that is a function of a profoundly malapportioned Senate and the Electoral College. In other words, if we don't look at this through the lens of minority rule and entrenched minority rule, then we can't solve it. And so one of the things I was trying to draw people's attention to in my remarks was just, you can't just fight the abortion fight alone if you're not really re-upping the fight for, you know, the voting rights bills that are now stuck in the in the Senate uh, and for uh, gerrymandering reform and for one person, one vote and equal representation, then you're going to keep losing. And so I think it's sort of depressing because you realize that part of the reason we've slid so far in such a compressed amount of time is not because people are now more in support of banning <laughs> people's views on this have not actually changed. And if anything, support for Roe is hardened. It's that a tiny minority now holds all the levers. And that's the thing we have to think about. So that in some sense is both depressing, but also I think the only path through. Well, if you look at the court, that's what you're talking about in a microcosm because it's 6-3. And it's only 6-3 because of the 16 election and because of Garland, which came before that, obviously. And that was McConnell, obviously, in the Republican Senate stopping Garland. And that was one. And then that was about, oh, well, you know, they've already started counting ballots in New Hampshire. There's eight people who voted there. And then Coney Barrett gets <laughs> seated, what, nine days before the election. So now we have a 6-3 court, and that's what we're talking about here is Mississippi and what that's going to do. So it's only just getting – we've come to a peak in, in terms of how depressing this is. So I, no wonder Fargo was, was depressing last night. But it is also difficult for progressives in a place like Fargo and North Dakota to know specifically what to do about democracy reform as much as they may care about it. It is hard when they are so outnumbered. And so I think that's the thing that also leaves leaves people feeling a little bit hopeless. I will say that there is one tactic, though, that we've employed in the past, but we have not employed recently and that we should reconsider. And that is bringing this issue and other issues directly to the voters via ballot initiatives or constitutional amendments or whatever tactics the uh, state constitutions allow. And in North Dakota, uh, there are options. In South Dakota, there are options. We have done this four times, twice in South Dakota and twice in North Dakota. And each time we did it, when abortion was directly on the ballot, we won by increasingly larger margins each time. The last time it was two to one, and that was in North Dakota. And once that happened, the state legislatures, even though they were still resoundingly anti-choice, stopped attacking abortion access 
for a year or two. And eventually their fear went away because we were not able for a variety of reasons to translate the win at the ballot level into wins at the legislative or at the statewide level. And so that's the trick that we have to figure out now moving forward. What I want to talk about today is both the oral arguments in Mississippi and what it says about the different justices and where we, where Dahlia and you anticipate this going and where I anticipate it going, which is not well, and uh, what the effect of that will be on the ground. Well, in our region, we expect that the states all around Minnesota will go dark. As we say, we know that North Dakota and South Dakota have trigger laws on the books. So if Roe were to fall entirely, abortion would be immediately banned in both of those states. Nebraska and Iowa uh, have indicated their, you know, legislative and, and leaders and governors have indicated their very strong interest in banning abortion. And so what we've been doing inside our region has been to make sure that we fortify our ability to welcome people to Minnesota. That means making sure that we have sufficient physical infrastructure, so enough health centers and enough capacity in our health centers, that we have enough trained staff, which is no small feat, by the way, (laughs) not easy Mm -hmm. to hire abortion doctors. And in other ways to build out our capacity, we're working with the abortion funds, of course, to make sure that there is sufficient financial assistance to help people travel and provide abortion navigators, as we call them, um, so on, to help people come to Minnesota. But it's not an answer for everybody. That's the thing to remember. You know, as much as we are turning ourselves into knots to make sure that we keep Minnesota as a safe haven and that we're able to care for people and provide them with all the support. There are still people who can't travel for a lot of reasons. And there are still people who are going to be forced into pregnancy and into parenthood because of what the Supreme Court is going to do. And we have to recognize that as well. There will be severe human cost. And the other thing is that this abortion ban, so to speak, is not an abortion ban for everybody. It's only an abortion ban for people who are already disadvantaged in many ways. People with means will always be able to travel to safe states and get their abortions. So it's not true that it's an all-out abortion ban. It's just an abortion ban for some people. And and maybe I would just add, we've seen since September 1st when SB 8 was allowed by the Supreme Court to go into effect in Texas. That's the second most populous state. 10% of the uh, women of childbearing age in Texas are now living under a six-week ban. And we have seen it's a natural experiment in what happens when you simply choke off access. As Sarah says, 
the very, very luckiest pregnant people can go to neighboring states, and some of them have been able to do that, thanks in no small part to abortion funds and navigators and groups that have organized for years to get women out of state. But huge numbers of people are left behind and have no option and are stuck. And we are seeing the attendant suffering and misery and immiseration that goes with that. And we are, you don't have to look further than Texas to see what happens. And I think the other thing that I would just say is we are talking about, and and, and we can talk about what the court is going to do, whether they're just going to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban and kick the can down the road, leave Roe, the shell of Roe to live to another day, or simply write the words Roe v. Wade is overturned come this summer. Either way, I think we have to be really aware that the long-term project is not, in fact, a patchwork of different rules in different states. I would tell people to take a look at the interview in The New Yorker this week between Marjorie Dannenfelser, the president of the Susan B. Anthony list, with Isaac Chotner. She's really clear that the in the next few years, they're going to push for a national 15-week ban. And that's just the start. And I think while it's totally accurate to say we may go to a kind of patchwork pre-Roe world, I also think we are living in a really different universe from pre-Roe. And we are talking about fetal personhood. And we are talking about punishing uh, mothers, which is not something that happened pre-Roe. And I think that to say this stops at, you know, you can always fly to New York and and California is really short-sighted. I think the long-term plan is much, much more pernicious. 100% agree with that. And our very important job right now is to help the American public understand that key point. And for backup, we can look at the attack on access to birth control and contraception. As we've seen, we, you know, we saw in Texas that, you know, for example, um, Planned Parenthood and was kicked out of the birth control program and has been in other states as well. And that has resulted in increasing maternal mortality, increasing pregnancy rates, so on and so forth in all of those states. But to think that this effort is going to stop with just abortion is really wrong. Our previous president, of course, imposed a gag rule on the Title X funding that uh, family planning providers across this country have relied on since 1970. But when, when the gag rule was allowed to go into effect, which meant that we could not refer, even refer people to abortion or answer questions about abortion, um, a couple of years ago under our previous president, it meant that large numbers of providers, all of Planned Parenthood, uh, for example, was forced to withdraw from that program. It's a program that we've used to provide free birth control to people since 1970, so 50 years. And we could not continue our participation in that program in good faith because there was a gag rule put on use of the funds. And it meant that people all across the country lost access to birth control and other other, you know, essential reproductive health care. Now with our current president, we are looking at being able to re-enter the program, but it's clear that contraception is a huge political football that's going to be tossed back and forth. And the ultimate goal 
is to make contraception unavailable as well. Boy, that is going backward. I mean, uh, uh, no wonder last night was depressing uh, because uh, on on the arguments in the, in the court, I was struck with uh, Kavanaugh. Can we play this, Peter? And this is Kavanaugh basically saying, "Hey, this might not be so bad <laughs> because we've done, you know, we've overturned, uh, you know, stuff that had stare decisis before, and it all, and it worked out great." Think about some of the most important cases the most consequential cases in this court's history. There's a string of them where the cases overruled precedent. Brown v. Board, uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker versus Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to re- about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. Knapp versus Ohio, which held that the exclusionary rule applies to state criminal prosecutions to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Gideon versus Rain- Wainwright, which guaranteed the right to counsel in criminal cases. Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In each of those cases, and that's uh, a list, and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, the court overruled uh, precedent. And um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had had listened and they were presented in our, with arguments in those cases, adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy uh, in West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins, and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. Okay, now I'll let you go off on that, Dahlia. Um, <laughs> it seemed to me that was an idiotic point. Well, it's worse than idiotic. It's <laughs> the word I used in all my coverage of the argument was gaslighting. It's the kind of thing you do when you think your listener is profoundly stupid. Um, <laughs> okay, and unfortunately, okay. gaslighting was definitely uh, the theme of the day. And really, I think the king of the gaslighting was uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So a couple of things start with the proposition that he is likening Roe to Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which uh, put into law separate but equal, and that he th- thinks that those things are comparators. And and I guess I should add, it was really interesting to see the extent to which the justices did not want to talk about what Sarah's talking about, the real lives, the lived lives of pregnant people who are suffering and who are in desperate straits, almost entirely not discussed at the court and attempts to discuss that. uh, The effects on the ground for real people were brushed away with this kind of very, very academic talk of precedent and the prestige of the court. It was like, but enough about women suffering. Let's talk about us uh, and how we feel. Uh, and that was a real through line. And, you know, this was vintage Kavanaugh. And, and at some point, by the way, uh, when faced with evidence, actual evidence uh, from one of the briefs, 
filed by economists, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, oh, but put all that data aside. Like, don't care about the facts. Let's just talk about us. So Kavanaugh, in addition to completely gaslighting by comparing Roe to Plessy, doesn't seem to understand that he's doing two things here, and they're very important moves. One is he is comparing a string of cases in which the court overruled precedent that took away rights, (laughs) that cabined rights for certain classes of people. And he's comparing that to Roe, which afforded half the population new rights. So they're not at all comparable. This would be the- These were 180 degree different. Exactly. You know, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson really didn't apply that much to Minnesota. We didn't have blacks and whites have to, you know, be in different cars and trains, right? That's what Plessy versus Ferguson was. That was separate but equal because- Yeah. Okay. So Brown said, no, there's a universal right in the United States that says that separate but equal is unconstitutional and you have to integrate schools and you have to integrate uh, public places. So what it did was it said, no, states, you can't do that. And what overturning Roe v. Wade would do is states go ahead Right. That's exactly right. And the same with uh, Lawrence v. Texas. That's right. It used to Lawrence v. Texas is about it was criminal to be gay. You know, homosexuality was criminalized, and they were saying no, nowhere in this country is it criminal to be gay. Obergefell was extending same gender marriage, saying you can't ban people from getting married because they're of the same gender. And that was saying you can't do that in certain states. So it was the exact opposite. Yep. It just made me mad. No, it was was completely deliberately misreading a line of cases, as you said, that said no more can people uh, lose rights. Now everybody has a right. And then putting that, holding that up to row. Uh, But the other thing is almost more important, Al, and that is this discussion of stare decisis. And let's recall every single one of the justices who was willing to say, peh, precedent doesn't matter, at their confirmation hearings (laughs) testified under oath that Roe v. Wade was, you know, it depends on which incantation you want to invoke, the law of the land, was good precedent, was super precedent, uh, was precedent of the court. Whatever the language was, they all said stare decisis, the idea that precedent doesn't change willy-nilly because of the composition of the court, they all affirmed that principle. And so what he Kav- told me it was settled law. Exactly. There you go. But I think it's really, really <laughs> incredibly singularly important that the people who both told us in their confirmation hearings that they believed in the principle of stare decisis and that also are seen as this moderate block at the center of the court, Chief Justice Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, they're supposed to be the moderate centrists who would adhere to stare decisis if for no other reason than the prestige of the court. And they're the ones who are talking about, eh, maybe, maybe stare decisis sucks and precedent sucks, and we should just overturn things that we don't like. So that was the move that Kavanaugh was making there. He was essentially saying, maybe this idea of adhering to precedent is overrated. Why is Amy Coney Barrett considered kind of moderate, or uh, why do people even pretend to call her that? 
Well, I think there was a really delusional set of articles that came out at the end of last term, her first term at the court, that said, look, she didn't overturn the Affordable Care Act. That was the most harebrained case of the term. (laughs) And because she didn't vote to do that, she must be a moderate. Look in Fulton, which was the case about uh, foster parents in Philadelphia and placing children in foster care with LGBTQ parents. And hey, she didn't overturn uh, the sort of seminal religious liberty case. So I think there was a story that was being told that because she wasn't hashtag YOLO, you know, crazy deranged at the end of last term, reversing things willy nilly, that maybe there was some reason to believe that she was a moderate. And it was just credulous and silly. And by the way, all those pieces stopped being written on the very last day of the term when the court gutted what was left of the Voting Rights Act in Brnovich. Then you stop seeing the 333 narrative. That, that's the Arizona case? Yeah, that was the, the, the Voting Rights Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that the court did away with. But up until then, I think there was this deep need to believe that Barrett and Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice were somehow this temperate, sane median at the court without understanding that all three of them, by the way, (laughs) lawyers in Bush v. Gore, that all three of them uh, were absolutely unequivocally against Roe and that they were put on the court to reverse Roe and that's what they would do. So, you know, we got pantsed, as we do, um, but I think at least... The one thing I could say after oral argument in Dobbs is that the blinders are off. We can call it what it is. And yes, the gaslighting from those justices will continue, but at least we can see who they are and what they're trying to do. I'm just going to ask Dolly, I'm really curious about where she sees the country in five years, given that the Supreme Court is essentially pantsing themselves. You know, they're, they're involved in, in self-destruction of their own legitimacy. So where will we be in five years when this continues? I I mean, that, I think, Sarah, is the reason, you know, if we recall back to SB 8, that's the Texas vigilante law, right, that says six-week abortions, anybody in the country has standing to bring a civil suit, and you can collect a bounty if you win. And as a function of that law going into effect, the court let it go into effect on the shadow docket late at night in a one and a half page unsigned order that gave no real reasons. The reason the court then agreed to hear that SB8 case and actually had briefing and arguments, I think was in part because of the backlash, because the country for a moment in September went completely bonkers and said, you can't just end Roe in Texas uh, without explaining why. And so they heard it and that case is pending. But it tells me that coupled with these tanking approval numbers, right? We're seeing poll after poll that shows that approval for the court is the lowest it's been since the history of polling, right? 38%, 40%. And so the court is aware that its numbers have dropped really quickly, by the way. And I think one of the things you see is the court pulling back on SB8 and saying, "Mm, maybe we should have had an argument about this. And that's why there was argument. Um, But also giving these utterly moronic speeches. I think you and I talked about this, Al. You know, 
Amy Coney yeah. Barrett flying out to Kentucky and saying, we're not partisan hacks, you know. Uh, at Justice, the McConnell Center. At the McConnell Center as she <laughs> sat next to him. Um, Justice Alito going to Notre Dame and giving a speech where he said, we're not partisan. There's nothing wrong with the shadow docket. I blame the reporters. So I think what you're seeing is the court really cowering that the public kind of hates what they're doing right now. And I had thought misguidedly that that would lead to tempering some of the rhetoric and some of the -the over-the-topness at oral argument in Dobbs. I was wrong, Sarah. Like, they were, they went for it. They were not hiding the ball. There was no attempt, I think, to say, hey, we're going to modulate some of the partisanship because the appearances are so terrible. So I I feel like the answer Two weeks ago for me was they're going to be a little careful. They've got this huge guns case on the docket. They've got a case this week about further enmeshing church and state funding schools in uh, Maine. They've got so much happening. They've got election cases. They've got affirmative action probably coming up. There's no way they're going to kind of say, hey, let's make hay when the sun shines and get rid of Roe this term before midterms. I think I was wrong. I think they just don't care about public legitimacy, or they think that if they just keep blaming the public and the press, they can get away with it. But I don't know what to say about the fact that the court's actions this term are so deeply misaligned with public will, other than it's possible that because they ultimately decide who votes and how we vote, they just don't think they're going to be on the hook for it. Well, and that gets us right back to the earlier discussion that we were having about democracy reform and how important it is, because we have, as a progressive movement, we have not paid attention to this issue of who appoints the justices. And the other side has, and they've had, you know, a laser focus on it year after year after year. And until we have democracy reform and can change the balance of power, as we were discussing earlier, I'm just not sure how we can ever rein the Supreme Court in. Well, you know, these are lifetime appointments, and unless, oh, you're you're saying to me that the uh, Blue Ribbon panel came back? I know you want to talk about the Blue Ribbon panel, Al. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so you and I have had this discussion where Republicans, when it comes to the Supreme Court, are a brass knuckles and we appoint blue ribbon panels <laughs> and we did on this right and they their report came back is that right uh yeah the draft report came out and was voted on on uh the 7th of december um this was a really impressive bipartisan commission president biden initially put it together um he promised uh during the campaign that Uh, And this was around the time that Barrett was being mashed onto a seat when voting had already begun in the 2020 election. And then candidate Biden said he was going to look at uh, expanding the court and other reforms. He put together this incredibly impressive bipartisan commission of all the smartest uh, constitutional thinkers in the land. Their task was to think about court reform, whether that was term limits or adding additional seats or uh, jurisdiction stripping. And they spent almost a year uh, looking at those questions. They were explicitly not supposed to make recommendations. So the panel came back with a really smart and scholarly draft report that said, here's the upsides and the downsides of doing 
court packing, upsides and downsides of jurisdiction stripping, upsides and downsides of uh, term limits, no recommendations. And certainly, I think President Biden can feel free to look at those things or not look at those things. But I think, as I've said on this show before, the notion that all of this can get resolved in 2037, as opposed to last spring, is the thing that just confounds me, because this happens, Mm -hmm. this comes down, the report, less than a week after it is manifestly clear in Dobbs that Roe is on the ropes. I was involved in some tier two debate prep. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wasn't on the A team, but I was on the B team or something. And when this came up about whether he would expand the court, right? Remember, that was an issue Mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. I basically said, why doesn't he just say, I'll be watching. I'll be president for at least four years and uh, hopefully have the Senate. And if Coney Barrett and the rest of the court does things like undo Roe, then I'll pack the court. And maybe that would have stopped him from doing it. I don't know. But I, mean, I thought that would have been a, a, a stronger answer than, than what he gave. Well, I, I would just say this, Al. This is just maybe me spitballing, as I do. But it seems to me that the minute it became clear that nobody was going to be watching and nothing was going to be done. We had a summer of really horrific shadow docket decisions, not just about SB8 in Texas, but about the Remain in Mexico policy, um, about the eviction moratorium. All of that stuff happens in the dark of night in the shadow docket, I think in no small part because the court understood exactly what you just said, which is, oh, there's no consequences for us. So let's go. And so it seems to me that that actually the sort of hypothesis you just put forth not only played out on the shadow docket all summer, but it partly explains why the court felt free to say the quiet parts loud uh, in the Dobbs arguments. We'll be right back with Dahlia Lithwick and Sarah Stace after this ad. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with Dahlia Lithwick and Sarah Stace. Sarah, I, I want to get you to talk about on the ground. And you started to about what's happening in Texas and what you believe is going to happen in the upper Midwest. This is just going to make it much, much more difficult for women to live their lives, right? 
Well, yes, it is. But I would also like to point out that it is already very, very difficult for women to live their lives. I mean, we're facing something, of course, very serious with the Supreme Court decision. But in fact, the states where I live and work have already passed truly draconian laws. And I, you know, I always used to say South Dakota was Texas before Texas was Texas. But when you look at South Dakota, um, it, it has some of the most restrictive laws on the books already. For example, in South Dakota, a woman must travel to the health center on Monday and be subjected to what the state calls informed consent, but we know is religiously mandated ideological scripting that a doctor is forced to say, which includes things like, if you go ahead with this, you will be at lifelong risk of suicide and depression, not medically accurate, but irrelevant, obviously, to the legislature that that's true. The person seeking the abortion then has to go through, you know, it's like 12 or 13 pages. They have to sign and initial every page that they understand what is being told to them. That document goes into their patient record. So it's permanent part of their patient record as if it's healthcare, which it is not. They then have to go away for 72 hours and ponder their decision, and then they can come back and they can have their abortion. Moreover, because there are no doctors in South Dakota who are able to perform abortion, either um, because they choose not to or because they would like to, but they happen to work for a, a health system in South Dakota and the health system prohibits them from doing it. So a condition of their employment is that they can't moonlight for us. We therefore have to fly doctors in and out. Each doctor has to go in twice to see one patient to perform one procedure. So if anything happens, they fly in on Monday, then there's a snowstorm on Thursday and they can't make it back by Thursday. The whole thing has to start over again the following week. Uh, you can't roll the informed, so-called informed consent forward. So that's just an Jeez. example of the way that people are already living in South Dakota. And that means it is very, very difficult to get an abortion in South Dakota already. Obviously, what the Supreme Court does is going to make it much, much worse. But I don't think it's a good idea to turn away from the very cruel reality on the ground already. We've been in litigation in South Dakota for my entire, I've been CEO of this affiliate for 20 years. We've been in litigation the entire time um, against one crazy thing or another, and we still are. And that's uh, duplicated in, in many other states. I'm just using South Dakota as an example because it is right next door to where I sit. But mm -hmm. this is happening in states all across the country. And, you know, obviously we know that if the Supreme Court does what it appears that they're going to do, that a large number of states will immediately take action to make uh, people's lives even more difficult than they currently are. Um, but it's already pretty hard. You know, we had a, we had a person come for an abortion not that long ago, who brought her four children with her twice, because she had to go in twice, remember, in, in South Dakota, and there was no one to watch her children. We had a, a, a patient who came to us in St. Paul, but she had started out 
in a town in South Dakota. Again, this happens to be a South Dakota example, but it could be anywhere. And she, because she was required to go in twice in Sioux Falls, she couldn't make that work with her work schedule. So that she then called North Dakota, where there is a, a, a clinic in Fargo, and they only operate one day a week. And she couldn't make that work out either. They couldn't fit her in. She then finally went and contacted a, a place in Colorado, and they unfortunately were not able to see her because by that point in her pregnancy, she needed a certain level of care that they could not provide. She then ended up at our health center in St. Paul. So basically, she went to check out South Dakota, North Dakota, and Colorado before she finally ended up in Minnesota. And again, that's just the reality for people's lives these days. Fortunately, she was able to get what she needed, but many people just aren't. And so they are forced. The state effectively takes control of their lives and their bodies and forces them into pregnancy and parenthood. Can I ask you about, um, you know, a pregnancy? You can learn things in your pregnancy that may make you want to have an abortion after a certain point. Uh, we've had circumstances where that just makes a lot of sense. W what happens with that? Well, it's not just that the the uh, an abortion would make a lot of sense. It's it's more than making sense. It's saving <laughs> okay, a person's life. Way. You yes. know, <laughs> it is saving someone's life. It is potentially saving their ability to have future children. It is allowing them to continue to parent the children that they already have. And these are very, very serious circumstances. And once abortion becomes illegal after 15 weeks, of course, that's a small proportion of the number of abortions that actually happen. But it doesn't matter if it's a small proportion or a large proportion. It is still people who need to have this medical procedure. Can, can you give me a circumstance where you find out that if you continue carrying the fetus, that it, it could jeopardize your ability to have babies later? There are lots of different circumstances. So one example might be someone who discovers, uh, because this is an undiscoverable fact early in pregnancy, it is not discoverable until later in pregnancy, that the fetus is not going to develop in a way that it can survive after birth. So it could still grow and it could still, you know, be well past 15 weeks before it is delivered, but it won't survive. And how cruel to force the pregnant person to carry that pregnancy and also how cruel to the fetus itself who who then could be born and suffer terribly before it finally dies. I didn't hear this brought up. What's it? What is the answer? What, what does Alito say to that? 
Well, can I just say, and, I, and Dolly, I, I know you, 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 you will um, have a lot to say about this too, but the lives of real women were not brought up um, in the arguments. It was as if women were, and pregnant people were just sort of irrelevant, people's lives irrelevant. And there was a lot of talk and argument about things that are, of course, very relevant, the law, but somehow these other ideas like what's going to happen to the legitimacy of the court and what about stare decisis and, you know, all of those things, yes, very important, but women were not centered. Pregnant people were not centered in the discussion at the Supreme Court, nor are they particularly centered uh, in, in, in the arguments um, as we move forward publicly either. Well, that, that's, that's why I brought uh, late term up and also rape. These are real situations, but it's especially cruel. Both are cruel. But a late term situation where you're going to jeopardize a woman's ability to have other babies and also the baby is not going to be viable or the fetus is not, uh, not going to live. How, what is their response to that? I, I know we didn't hear it in the arguments, but what is, what is the response to that? Honestly, Al, they just don't care. They, they truly just simply don't care. And while it is very important for us to talk about these kinds of cases, because it, you know, it helps to really illustrate and help people understand what's going on. I also really think it's important to say that every person who makes a decision to have an abortion is making a legitimate choice. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if they are raped. It doesn't matter if they are six weeks along or 10 weeks along or whatever it is. We need to trust people to know what is right for their own lives. And we have to be careful about drawing distinctions between mm -hmm. good abortions and legitimate abortions and those that are not. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, the late term situation to me is, I just want to throw it in Alito's face is basically what, <laughs> what I want to do, but. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really cruel. And, you know, in, in our um, health center here in um, St. Paul, where I'm sitting today, we are one of the very few places in the entire upper Midwest that sees women past a certain point in pregnancy. So people come here to us from all over the country and are in very, very difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. Can I just pull on one thing that Sarah is saying that I think is so, so, so really essential and, and, and kind of got missed. It's not just that women and their lived lives were invisible to the court. It's that I think the the language of women as incubators really was centered. And I'm thinking of Amy Coney Barrett and her Insistent oh God, yeah. several times that because <laughs> states now have these wonderful safe haven laws, which allow them to drop babies off without criminal penalties, uh, that somehow this takes away any burden on the mother because we have essentially a reverter to the days where you could drop the newborn off at the fire station. 
Uh, and so that means that there's no penalty or cost to carrying to term. Um, I'm thinking of Clarence Thomas talking about maybe, you know, we could change fetal endangerment to earlier in the pregnancy. I mean, this puts a lie to, and I'm just thinking of everything Sarah just said about all those scripts that were written, right, that said, you know, we just are telling you all this information, even if it's not true, um, because we want you to make good choices. And we want a 72-hour waiting period because we want you to make good choices. We just want wider, you know, hallways in the clinics, right? We want an HVAC system that isn't necessary. All of that is because we are centering these mothers and we want them to have healthy procedures and make good choices. That's been the pretext since Casey, since 1992. It's all under the bucket of we love women. We just want them to have good information and make good decisions. And just look at how quickly that falls away. We're no longer talking about helping women make good decisions. Now we're just talking about they can incubate this baby and when they give it up, resume their lives without any understanding of A, how dangerous it is to carry to term for a lot of people, but B, what it says about just cavalierly saying, you'll just make the tricky decision about giving it up for adoption. That's not a burden. And so I just really, really want to point out that the falsity of years and years of these trap laws, the targeted regulation of abortion providers that were ostensibly just helping mothers make good choices is gone. That's just gone. And now we're seeing a really punitive new regime that says we don't actually care about the mothers. By the way, states like Mississippi that have the worst maternal and infant mortality rates, that have the worst outcomes for mothers and babies, now you're hearing a lot of these life groups saying, oh, we're going to have to do better on like the social safety net, and we're going to have to try to make sure that people get health care and family leave, all the stuff they haven't cared about at all. Now they're saying, oh, there's going to be all these extra babies, and we need to think about that. But I just want to really lift up what Sarah is saying, which is all of this, all of the whole pretext that we were doing this to help mothers is now gone. Mothers now, and we're seeing this all over the country, are being prosecuted for miscarriages, for drug use during pregnancy. Mothers are not just incubators. They are themselves on the hook for the welfare of the babies they carry. And that is not centering women. That is exactly right, Dahlia. I completely agree 100%. And if you look at the health system, especially in rural America, you can see that there are fewer and fewer places around our country in rural America for women even to safely give birth in a hospital. Community hospitals have closed or they no longer agree to deliver babies. And so women live hours away from a safe place to give birth. That is not something that the other side seems to care about one little bit. So they're willing to just abandon pregnant women to their pregnancies. <laughs> you don't even you know, circle around and help them give birth in, in a safe way. And of course, we also know that maternal mortality rates in our country are shocking and among the worst in, in all developed countries and, and getting worse. Um, and, and, and also, of course, that burden falling more and more disproportionately on Black and, and BIPOC women as well. So, you know, hypocrisies 
abound here. And and Sarah, maybe can you just talk for one second? Because I think this also goes back to what you were saying about even just talking about contraception, even talking about pregnancy prevention, because I think another piece of this, in addition to, you know, there are not uh, prenatal care, there's not a safe place to give birth, you know, it, it, it long predates that there aren't places to have safe conversations about contraception and pregnancy prevention. And I wondered if you could talk just for one little second, because I think it's so important, even about, you know, if you want to talk about like your SB 2030 or just the ways in which the effect of so many of these laws, particularly laws that make it impossible to speak and advise and to give information, to run programs that give information, all of this kind of piles on to the problem of we have solutions. We can do things about unwanted pregnancies. But if you're not allowed to speak or counsel or advise or give out condoms or give information, you are in fact like down this slippery slope of creating all the unwanted pregnancies that then become the problem. I know. Isn't it incredible when you look at the amount of explicit sexuality in our media today, that young people are denied information about how their own bodies work. So they don't know about pregnancy. They don't know how to protect themselves from sexually transmitted infections. They don't understand things like consent. And what we have seen in legislatures around the country, and particularly in my region, has been a strong stepping up on the part of these conservative legislatures and governors and attacking our ability to just tell the truth. And when I say our, I mean, kind of, you know, our, the movement writ, writ large, not, not just Planned Parenthood, but our ability to, to talk about things like how your body works. So attacks on funding, we, we, we lost all funding in, in Iowa recently and have had to curtail very much uh, what, what we've been able to do there. In um, North Dakota, um, a big attack on anybody that even collaborates with us to talk about human sexuality and the human body. And it means that not only do people not have access to health care, they don't even have access to information to understand how their bodies work. It's a basic human right, in my opinion to be able to understand and talk about how your body works. And even that is being rolled back all over this country and particularly here in the upper Midwest. The debate over abstinence-only sex ed and lies and lying liars uh, tell them a fair and balanced look right. I wrote a letter to all these conservatives to ask them to tell me their abstinence story. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I said, you know, was there ever a point where you were tempted and almost lost, you know, your virginity, but you didn't because of will? And I didn't get any back. But I would send it to like William Bennett and Phyllis Schlafly. And <laughs> like, but it just is like, are you people kidding? And if you want to prevent unwanted pregnancies, you know what would be a good idea is to tell people how not to get pregnant. You know, it's funny. I was looking back at some uh, sex ed materials from the 50s. And, of course, we, you know, we think about the 50s as a very repressive time, and it was in many respects. Let's not go back there. I'm not advocating that. But yes, nonetheless, you are. 
<laughs> no, no. Uh, but nonetheless, the materials that were being distributed in public schools around the Midwest were actually not that bad. They were very factual and pretty explicit and uh, explained in great detail uh, what the birds and the bees are all about and, you know, what it means and how things work and this part fits into that part and, you know, this is the result and so on and so forth. We don't even have that anymore in many of our schools. It's, uh, it, 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 it's just gone. So, you know, huge generation of kids are, are not learning what it is that they need to learn, except, of course, you know, we have our, our friendly Internet, uh, and so um, yeah. people are able to go there. <laughs> that, you know, I was thinking when they wanted to burn, uh, the school board wanted to burn Beloved yes. uh, because it was pornography, yeah. uh, they said. And uh, just thinking of a school board meeting where the parents agree with them and go like, my son gets plenty of pornography at home on his iPad. <laughs> right. School is supposed to be a break from the pornography. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> and, and, and maybe maybe this is just a good place to, to, again, something that Sarah said that I think we don't always think about, which is this doesn't stop at, at abortion. This is about access to contraception. Amy Coney Barrett is the first justice who, at her confirmation hearing, uh, wasn't willing to say that Griswold versus Connecticut uh, was good law. Everybody else was like, oh, of course, that's established super precedent. That's the case that allowed you to <laughs> use contraception <laughs> in your marriage. Uh, and that one's on on uh, the table. And I, you know, there's a Trump judicial appointee who was confirmed who worked not just against contraception, but against IVF, against surrogacy. She signed an ad in the South Bend newspaper for a group that was against in vitro fertilization. No, I mean, I think it's really clear that if the movement wins on abortion, the next thing is, you know, this is the problem with fetal personhood. The next thing to go is surrogacy and IVF and contraception and the morning after pill. And this isn't the end point. Um, and I think that one of the things that, that again, we're very myopic when we get focused on, you know, oh, well, if Roe goes down, you know, there'll be an underground railroad and we'll get people to New York and people can fly to, to Japan and it's all going to work out. But this is just a much, much longer, and here I'm going to say theological project about fetal personhood. And I think to kind of have the aperture so narrow that you're laser focused on this will end abortion doesn't begin to sort of get into the idea that the next stuff that I think is in the crosshairs is things like contraception and IVF. Right. And we in the movement tend to fall into that trap a little bit because particularly those of us who are providing abortion, because our very strong instinct is to jump in and try to solve the problem for individual women and people who need abortion. And that's fine. That's all well and good. But it, it, it distracts in a way from this larger point, Dahlia, that you're making um, and that I want to also underscore, which is that this is just a, a, a first step in the journey 
toward dismantling access to all of this, you know, these very, very important things that we take for granted in our lives right now. We just, and I think people in our country just assume because birth control is so embedded in our culture and even Catholics use birth control, almost 100% support it's like, you know, we breathe air, we use birth control. They're not going to take away air. They're not going to take away birth control. It's not going to happen. But in fact, it is going to happen. And if you look at this attack that I was talking about earlier on, on the Title X program, which again was established in 1970, Richard Nixon signed it into law. Think about that. And it had very broad bipartisan support for decades. And could you explain Title X for us? Title X is a program that it effectively makes birth control and family planning services available to everybody, regardless of how much money they have, who they are. You know, even people that don't have documents can can access Title X, teenagers, anybody that says, I'm sexually active and I would like to have birth control, gets birth control under Title X or did until the the program began to be dismantled because of the gag rule under our previous president. Uh, So the fact that that happened and we lost, uh, we we litigated, we did not win. And so we have had to live with the dismantling of Title X. It was unthinkable when I started leading Planned Parenthood 20 years ago. It was unthinkable that Title X would go away. It was unthinkable that really and truly uh, people in this country would lose access to birth control. Even talking about it today, I, I sort of feel like it, you know, makes me sound like I'm a, you know, a, a crazy person with my hair on fire, you know, running around the conservative upper Midwest, but or crying wolf. But I don't think that's true. I, I, I think that there is a very real danger that we are going to lose all of these things in our lifetimes, not not in some, you know, far away, distant point in the future. I just have to think there would be such an enormous backlash to that. Because as you say, it's it's ninety nine percent of Catholic women sometime in their life use use contraception. Well, there wasn't a there wasn't a backlash when Title Ten when when the gag rule was implemented in Title Ten, and again, I don't think people understood that. Like, well, they 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 didn't understand. Yeah, they didn't understand it, but also it didn't affect everybody. It only affected people that didn't have money. I mean, we we keep saying there's going to be a huge backlash when the court overturns Roe. On the first day of September, the court nullified Roe in all of Texas, and people were exercised for three days and moved on. And I think we've normalized now that there's a six-week abortion ban in Texas, and oh well. I, I just am not sure that counting on the backlash uh, is the way to go here. I think that um, you know what what Sarah is saying. Well, I'm, I'm talking about contraception, and I do think. As, as much as people care, you know, have very, very strong feelings about Roe v. Wade, I think it's almost universal on contraception, almost. Well, I'm just saying what happened to Title X is the canary in the coal mine. And what has happened 
uh, to state funding for birth control all across this country, same thing, or the refusal to expand Medicaid so that people can have access to birth control. It's it's the canary in the coal mine. It's coming. And one woman in four, if the statistics are correct, has had an abortion. So I, I just think there's this notion that you can disaggregate it from the actual experiences of actual people, but that's just not correct. I think that this is a power problem, not a reality problem. And, you know, as I said when I opened, this is, you know, the electoral college that gives us presidents who are not elected by majorities and the malapportioned Senate that confirms their Supreme Court nominees and an anti-majoritarian court that puts into effect laws that don't reflect what anybody wants. And I think in a, in a really deep way, uh, we are looking at the end of Roe and saying, well, you know, it doesn't really, really matter because it's not as onerous as losing the right to contraception. But I think it's, you know. Well, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not, I, I, saying I'm that. not I'm accusing just... <laughs> you of saying that. I'm just, I'm just saying this is how slippery slopes work. And this is how frogs boiling in pots feel. And maybe the only other thing I would say is, you know, I hate hearing Sarah say we're running around like crazy people and we sound hysterical because that was exactly the language of Republicans in the Senate during the confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh and Barrett, where they were openly mocking Democrats for saying um, the right to choose is on the line. And so I think I, I put it under gaslighting, you know, to continue to say, particularly to women, you're out of your mind, you're hysterical, you're overreacting. You've been saying that, you know, Roe is under threat since the day uh, it came into being. It just, I, I hate that sense that we have to apologize for being hysterical as the ground is falling out from beneath our feet. Can I just say one positive thing? Please. Well, we are seeing large numbers of medical professionals speaking out about this issue. And um, uh, they will speak out more and more loudly, uh, you know, as we really get into this whole contraception thing. So we've got, you know, everybody from the American Medical Association to the American College of um, OBGYNs and many others. And yes, you know, they have... It's not like they haven't ever spoken in the past, but they're coming on now with a louder voice. And I'm, I th that I'm raising that because as an abortion provider, we have been so stigmatized and ghettoized over the years and not considered part of, quote unquote, mainstream healthcare. You know, we have to have a separate abortion clinic. Well, you don't have to have a separate clinic for other other things. Other things are not stigmatized. But now um, more and more healthcare providers are are actually standing up and saying, no, this is this is not right. I will feel even happier and be able to end on an even more positive note when I can say that they are actually taking responsibility for providing abortion. <laughs> and although that is true, you know, and the East Coast and the West Coast um, way more true, but here in the Midwest, it's just not true. And so once they begin to, you know, jump into the, into the pool with us and, you know, really, really swim alongside us by also providing abortion, I'll be, I'll be even happier. But at least now they are beginning to speak out in places where they have not in the past. Well, so small little bit of hope, small little, little ray of sunshine. No, I, I love that. Yeah. Sarah, because I think it goes to, I think, Al, when you and I spoke after SB8 passed in Texas, 
I said one of the things that worried me was the way in which if it is unlawful to not just perform an abortion, not unlawful, if you can be civilly liable, or to aid and abet an abortion, or to know about an abortion, to be the Uber driver who drives you to a clinic. If all of those people are chilled from helping, then the aggregate effect of that is to just completely isolate the most vulnerable pregnant people in their most vulnerable moment. And that the real sin to me of SB8, in addition to the sort of vigilante system, is that it was freezing out the people who need help and information and guidance and counseling. Uh, If their counselors, their priests are on the hook for talking to them, then they're alone in the world. And, you know, I think what Sarah's describing is a similar attempt to sort of freeze out and hive off providers, uh, Planned Parenthood, to, to make it impossible for them to speak and counsel and help. And what I really noted in this moment is that faced with the prospect of just totally isolating the most vulnerable, the poorest, you know, immigrants, people who have multiple children and simply cannot afford to have another, to 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 leave them alone at the mercy of, you know, a, a, a movement that at best wants them to drop off that baby at a fire station without criminal penalties but at worst just wants to leave them to have children they cannot care for. I really, really think it matters so much that we're understanding that that's the project, is to isolate the vulnerable, to give them misinformation, to take away Mm -hmm. their choices. And so for me, I see a version of what Sarah is really describing, which is we can at least call that what it is now and really like do the work which, by the way, I think black and brown women in this country have been doing for a really long time, but do the work of not letting them be isolated and making sure that they have massive, massive support networks. And so I guess I just see the, the sort of underpinning of some of these laws is to make it impossible for them to have support and the ways in which the communities are rising up in spite of that to support them, I think is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. Uh, thank you both. Oh boy. I, um, <clears throat> we'll see. We, we see this at the end of their term, June or July. Mm-hmm. And SBA okay. will be decided probably very soon. Well, thank you both. This is pretty sobering, but I think valuable. And um, uh, really thank you, both of you, for um, all the wonderful work you do. Sarah, uh, good to talk to you again. I haven't talked to you in a while, but next time I'm in Minnesota, let's get together, okay? For sure. It's good to hear your voice, Al. You too, Dahlia. Take good care. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.